ready to rise above loud, angry headlines, longing for an alternative to the world's fighting and fear-mongering? Christianity Today magazine offers a trustworthy, faithful perspective on stories that matter to you, from the church next door to movements and ministries all around the world. Subscribe to CT for full access to in-depth reporting, insightful commentary, and redemptive storytelling, both online and in print. A subscription to CT also includes seasonal devotionals, special issues, and exclusive content. Visit orderct.com today or click the link in the show notes to get started and join a growing community of thoughtful evangelical Christians who value different news that makes a difference. That's orderct.com to subscribe today. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. On this week's episode of Signposts, we feature a recent Facebook Live Q&A with Dr. Russell Moore and Brent Leatherwood discussing the ERLC's upcoming national conference and Dr. Moore's new book, The Storm-Tossed Family, How the Cross Reshapes the Home. Hey, everybody. I'm Brent Leatherwood. I'm the Director of Strategic Partnerships here at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and we are so glad you're able to join us for today's Facebook Live interview. I'm joined today by our president, Dr. Russell Moore. Uh, And before we get to talking to him and answering some questions, uh, just a few housekeeping items. As a reminder, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission is an entity of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, We engage the culture with the gospel uh, in the hopes of furthering human flourishing. Uh, Today, I'll be interviewing Dr. Moore about his upcoming book that will be released soon, The Storm-Tossed Family. We're going to get into that book and how it inspired our upcoming national conference Uh, later this year in October. After that, we will have some time for question and answers. So again, Dr. Moore, thank you for joining us for this. Good to be here. So let's just kind of set the the framework here. Uh, Our national conference this year is called The Cross-Shaped Family, and that was inspired by your upcoming book, uh, The Gospel-Shaped Family. Why is it so important for us to hold this conference? Well, I think because if you think about what the Apostle Paul says when he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And then you realize Paul's talking about the cross as we think about it. He's also talking about marriage. He's talking about uh, parenting. He's talking about uh, what it is to live uh, live life out in the public arena. So he's, he's not saying I'm not talking about anything except for the cross. He's saying the cross has to do with all of these other aspects of our lives. And so in order to understand those things, you have to understand what it means to be crucified with Christ um, and what it means to, to live with him. And also because one of the things I've found is that C.S. Lewis used to say, the devil never sends errors one by one, but two by two hmm. and on either side of the truth. And I think that certainly shows up in terms of family. And so you can have one person who has a, an inordinately low view of the family, someone who is pursuing self and, and someone who is, is not concerned about uh, his or her family uh, responsibilities, either to parents or to spouses or children or, or extended family. But then you can also have somebody who idolizes the, the family 
And that doesn't necessarily have to be the person who is um, married with three kids in the suburbs uh, piling into a, a minivan, some people might, might think. It could be someone who has no family at all, but who is completely uh, devastated by that, that reality. Uh, and who who is constantly thinking, if only I had a family or a better family uh, or more family, then somehow my life would be where I would, would want it to be. And then there are also a lot of people who spend their entire lives because of really bad things that have gone on in families in the past, thinking that somehow they have to be defined by those things for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. I, I ran into a, a young woman one time who was a Christian, and she was, um, we were talking after somewhere where I had spoken, and she said that she was incredibly lonely, but she would not make any friendships or relationships of any kind. And I said, why? And she said, because I'm going to commit suicide. Mm. And I said, are you feeling suicide? She said, oh, no, I've never considered suicide in my life. But she said, my grandfather committed suicide. My father committed suicide. And so I know sooner or later, this is going to happen to me. And I don't want anyone to be hurt by that the way that I was hurt uh, by them. And so this was somebody who wasn't even experiencing those sorts of things, but she believed her her family background was her destiny Mm. uh, in a way that that just isn't, isn't the case. And I think that's an extreme example, but I think a lot of people sort of bear that you know, words that parents have said to them when they were kids or or patterns that they've seen in, in their family that somehow they think can't get past that. Right. So if you even think about um, a, a lot of what's happening with people uh, delaying marriage for, for long, long periods of time or avoiding marriage altogether and cohabiting and, the, and those sorts of things, a lot of times people will say it's because they have too low of a view of marriage. And in one sense, that's true. But what I found is that often is they have too high of a view of marriage. Mm. They think that marriage has to be the be-all and end-all that's going to completely resolve uh, everything in my life. So therefore, I'm going to make sure that all of that is together. Or I've come out of a situation where my parents divorced, and so I want to make sure that's never going to happen right. to me. And they just push the risk back. Yeah in ways that are that are destructive. So that's really what uh, what the impetus is to talk about uh, these various issues. That last point certainly that that was my story walking mm. into marriage. Mm. Uh, I'm curious you just you just went through a whole range of audiences mm-hmm. that I think this national conference could speak to that your book certainly could speak to. In your process of writing, did you know you wanted it to be that broad or do you start with a particular audience that you have in mind? And then it just kind of goes out. Well, I think that most people fit into multiple audiences. And so I think we have this, this view that somehow you move from being a single to being a young married to being a, a, a middle-aged married uh, mother or father with children to being a grandparent or, or whatever in a way that, that really isn't. You don't stop being the same person. And so someone who is a child being parented uh, is not going to be in that particular aspect for, for the rest of his or her life. But the things that happen there will carry through. And so often uh, some of the ways that we respond to things, you may be a 70-year-old grandmother, but you're responding to some things as a child mm. needing a parent. And there are some children out there 
uh, who are responding to things as though they were parenting their own parents. And so I think we fit into multiple categories all the time. And sometimes the same sort of tumult is taking place that we just don't realize how much we actually have in common in terms of spiritual warfare together. Yeah. And I think part of the, the, the way that that happens is that the church, um, out of good intentions and motivations, has sometimes split us up to the point where we really think, well, those who are married uh, just need to be around other people who are married yeah. and, or, or those who have right. children need to be with those who have children of the same age, when in reality, Married people need single people, and single people need married people, and younger people need older people, and older people need younger people. And that's part of what it means to bear one another's burdens. Mm. Uh, So I think sometimes we lose sight of that. And so sometimes you can have someone who is, for instance, in a very difficult marriage, who can turn around and say, if only I had that marriage, or if only I were single like her, then, then, then I wouldn't be having this sort of tumult. And then everybody in that category can think the same thing. Well, I'm all alone. That's the only thing. When in reality, we're all right now in a situation of a world that is, John says, under the sway of the wicked one. We're carrying across through that. And so the, the reality that we have, one of the reasons that I called the book The Storm-Tossed Family is because I was thinking a lot about this old hymn that we used to sing in my home church called Put Your Hand in the Nailed Scarred Hand. And I was thinking about the beginning of that song, and it says, uh, your storm-tossed life. And that's really, no matter where somebody is situated in in all of these these issues of family strife, uh, that's what it it seems like. No matter how together you might think you, you are, you are being tossed about in a situation where the answer is to say, well, where do I look? Uh, where's the, the sort of anchor point that's, that's here? And I think that's common throughout uh, the various situations. I know our senior pastor, uh, he, he likes to have the old saying, you're either in a storm, you just came out of one, or you're about to go in one. Yeah, um, well, and I, and I would even ratchet that up a little bit more and say you're always in one. Yeah. It's just a question of whether or not you've become so accustomed uh, to the, the, the rocking around that you don't recognize it. And the storms come in different places. Uh, so if, if you're kind of like with your own, your own personal life, John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And so if you're in, everybody is situated in some sort of family, even if you're someone who says, I don't know who any of my family members were, and I have no one who is related to me by blood or marriage or adoption or anything else right now, that person still is part of a family because that person is relating to maybe even just those absent places of someone who had been been mother or father. And so the question isn't whether you have tumult going on. The question is, are you aware of where that tumult is? And are you able to, to navigate that with, with the cross? We have, uh, over the course of the last few years, our national conference has transitioned from really just equipping pastors to going beyond that audience. So now we see a healthy group of pastors and ministers and folks from the laity really getting equipped at our conference. How do you think that this upcoming national conference, again, that's inspired from your book, 
how do you think it's going to equip folks who attend in October? Well, everybody is having to address uh, these issues. With the priesthood of believers that we have within the, the congregation, we're to encourage and to admonish one another. And every, everybody, it has to deal with someone in distress or, or maybe not even in distress, but in need of wisdom uh, and in need of direction as it relates to, to family. I mean, I can just think of over the last week uh, talking to uh, someone whose who's, uh, wife is an unbeliever and ha has left him and he's sorting through that to talking to someone who came out of a, a terribly, terribly abusive and neglectful home as a child and just trying to work through uh, those issues to someone who's saying, how do I decide how to deal with a teenager? What's, yeah. what's rebellion and what's just trying to sort through and find place in, in life? I mean, everybody's dealing with someone in your, in your life usually multiple people who are sorting through these questions of, of family. So how do we do that with, with wisdom? Mm -hmm. and, and how do we do that with grace? And so I think anybody within the body of Christ, and frankly, I think that you know, often we've had our national conferences, there've been some people who aren't even uh, Christians mm -hmm. yet, uh, but who are saying these are important questions for, for me and I want to see it from a, from a different point of view. So is it fair to say, you know, maybe some of our audience, they've gone to conferences previously and they just come away saying, well, they're trying to turn me into a culture warrior. Yeah. Is it fair to say, no, this is actually practical application of the gospel in your family life? Yeah, yeah, this is, this is because what we're going to be talking about here, what I think often happens when we come to family discussions is that family becomes, okay, well, you've got these people here who are pro-family and these people over here who are anti-family in a way that's really reductionistic of the kind of spiritual warfare that we're in. So uh, in, in one sense, every human being created in the image of God is pro-family mm. because we're longing for connectedness and community. And every person as a sinner is anti-family. So we're, we're constantly seeing how can I exalt the self rather than to sacrifice the self and to pour myself out for others, including including family. And so the line isn't, you know, as, as Solzhenitsyn used to say, it runs straight through every human heart. Uh, the, the family divide does as well. So what we're going to be talking about is a variety of, of issues from everything from how do you think through dealing with aging parents uh, to how do, you, um, how do you rear children when you feel like you don't know what you're doing uh, and, and you don't know where to go to how is it that you shore up a healthy marriage, mm -hmm. to what do you do when you're uh, in a family and someone's lost a job and has that sort of hit to the identity. I mean, all of those various questions. And then for churches, how do you minister to people who are at various stages and places that are quite different from one another? Mm -hmm. So that the gospel is being applied both to that uh, elderly woman who is worried that she's getting dementia, but she has no family around, and she's she's worried that if she tells someone she's going to be put in an institution that she, where she doesn't want to go, all the way down to how do you minister to that 12-year-old kid uh, who has been tossed around from one foster care home to the other and who doesn't have a concept of what it means to be loved. Right. I mean, all of those those things. To what do you do with the kids who 
the, the young uh, couple who says, we want to be, we, we think maybe God's calling us to be married, but how do we know whether or not we're going to go in and repeat the same mistakes our parents made and end up with a with an explosion? All of those situations, church has to be has to be dealing with all those things at once. Gotcha. So our first question comes from Kyle, and uh, he asks, how do we raise sons in a Me Too culture? Hmm. Well, I think a part of that has to do with teaching sons from a, a very early age about the, uh, the dangers of, of power, physical power, uh, and, the, and the danger of the appetites. That if you have an appetite that is unhinged and selfish, uh, and isn't defined by the cross, then you're going to end up with something that is predatory. And so a, a lot of that has to come in and redefining what masculinity means away from cultural stereotypes uh, that want to center simply on toughness and on power. And so you know that the example of masculinity is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is tough and gentle. And it's a toughness that is not defined by self, self-protection or exaltation of self, but a toughness that is for the sake of gentleness of pouring, uh, pouring himself out. And so I think that has to be talked about. And then also, I think sometimes we don't address issues early enough because we think these are things that our children can't handle. And so, but there are age-appropriate ways to come in and say, look around at all of these awful things that we're, we're able to see that are just now coming out. So you have people who have been hiding for years and years and years doing satanic things. That ought to be a word of, of, of warning. Mm. And so I think, that, I, think, I think we've done a good, a better job anyway, in more recent years of preparing children, uh, warning children about predators, how to recognize predators. I think we also need to do a really good job of, of teaching children how not to be predators. Mm. And that means, I think, taking very small, manageable uh, situations and showing them the way of, of the cross uh, in those things. Mm. And so the next one actually kind of ties right into that. Sheila asks, uh, how do you raise sons when you are married to an unbeliever? Well, I think... I don't think it necessarily needs to be so specific as sons. I think sons or daughters would both be a challenge married to an unbeliever. But I think you recognize what the Apostle Paul is is teaching in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, where he says you have an, an unbelieving spouse. And he said, but the, the children are holy. The, 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 the family is made holy by the, the believing uh, spouse. And so what I would say to that is, be looking for the ways that in God's common grace, he has equipped your unbelieving spouse mm. because everybody is made in the image of God. So there, there's going to be a, a sense of, of alignment in some place with God's design. Look for those things and encourage those things. And don't turn the gospel into a weapon uh, against an unbelieving spouse. Mm. And I've found that happen many times where you have, when inevitably, in any marriage, there's going to be points of, of tension. Sometimes a believer can think, well, the, the tensions that we're having is because 
he's an unbeliever or because she's an unbeliever. And you can communicate that to the children in a way that can give the false impression that the gospel is about who are the good guys and who are the bad guys um, in a way that's not only not going to then, is not going to be effective in winning that spouse to Christ, but also is going to signal something to your children, which is to say, well, the gospel is a, is a weapon that mom or dad can use when necessary. Mm. Uh, and so I would be very cautious about that as well. Uh, so those first two uh, were about sons. This one goes a little bit broader, uh, about kind of striking a balance. This comes from Rex. Protecting children from culture versus letting them see the evils and instructing them about it. Well, I, I think we have to do both. And, and it takes a great deal of wisdom um, as to how to do that. Mm. Uh, but look at, I mean, sometimes I think that parents are hyper-scrupulous about protecting their children in in areas that the Bible doesn't protect them mm. and then leaves them in, in free fall on those issues where the Bible does seek uh, to protect them. Mm. So and I had a, a lady who got really upset with me one time when I was preaching through 1 Corinthians. I was in 1 Corinthians 6. And I use the word prostitute, talking about bodily integrity, sexual morality, and so forth. And she came up after and said, my little Timmy uh, had to hear the word prostitute, and I have to explain to him what prostitute is, and I think that's wrong for you to have said that. And my response was, well, I actually didn't use the word prostitute. The Holy Spirit did through the Apostle Paul, and the word God has given to to all of the all of the people of God. Now, obviously... If we'd gone into some sort of graphic uh, description, that would have been a bad thing. But there's a way to communicate to your children without traumatizing them mm. with too much uh, information to say, these are the things that are out there uh, in the world. Mom and dad aren't afraid of those things. And I think the, the message that we communicate, because you're not able you're not able to keep your, your child hermetically sealed from the outside world. Right. And what tends to happen, though, is that a child will, will find out about things and then come in and bring those things up or mention them or not. Just watch mom and dad's reaction. And the unspoken communication is we're scared of that because we don't know how to answer that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we don't have anything to be afraid of. Jesus said to us, I'm telling you all of these things ahead of time uh, about persecution, about all of it, so that you will know when they happen. You will remember that I, I told you. So, I mean, think about the way we do with, with puberty. In a healthy family, what a parent will do is to take a child before all of these hormonal things start happening and to say, here's what you're going to experience. Don't panic. Don't freak out. And I'm going to be here with you to, to talk you through all of this, but I'm telling you ahead of time. Well, really, that's not just puberty. We all need that at every stage of our lives. I mean, we need somebody saying, hey, this is what midlife is like. Right. You need to be ready for it. This is what 40-year-olds need to be start thinking through what is, what is it like to be elderly from elderly people who are going through that right now. And elderly people need to be being prepared for what it means to die. I mean, that, that's, I think that is what should be happening within families. And so I would say, don't be afraid. You're going to mess up sometimes. You're going to 
not say enough or you're going to say maybe a little bit too much. But if you've got a healthy relationship with your child, you'll be able to tell and you can then adjust. And so I've, I've had conversations with my children where I'm talking about something and then I realize I had this conversation too early. He doesn't even know what I'm talking about and I'm going to have to do this again. That's okay. And then there are other times when I've said, I should have prepared him for this before. Okay, well, adjust and, and just be watching for that. Here's one from Dan. A lot of our parenting advice in the church assumes a stable two-parent family. Mm-hmm. But how should churches help disciple kids who come from dysfunctional and even broken homes? Really good question. And I think, I think that's exactly right, that that's the assumption. And sometimes I think it's because... Sometimes some of the people who are writing the materials are in relatively stable uh, homes and so don't have a, an empathetic enough understanding of other realities. I think we're getting, I think the, the church is getting better at that. Sometimes I think it's because sometimes within the church we thought, well, we don't want to give the sort of impression that anything less than the ideal is what we commend, which is, I think, is a really false fear uh, to have. Mm-hmm. So I think if you think about who, when I think of someone who has done this really, really well, I'm not thinking within the church, although the, the person is a Christian, but I'm thinking of um, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood mm-hmm. on uh, public television uh, for many years, where you had someone who is coming in and explaining to children what divorce is what uh, it means to lose a parent to death in a way that isn't, that isn't saying to the child who's living through those things, you're somehow in, in some other category, nor is he saying to the child who isn't going through those things, this is about to happen to you. Saying this, this happens, and these are difficulties that we have to go through, but you're still loved, you're still received, and, and, and so on. That needs to be the message to the, the children and then we need to have within churches the ability to say, okay, we've got families where we're going to have uh, single parents or we're going to have situations where there's going to be only one parent in the home who really is engaged. And then there are going to be situations where there are grandparents raising uh, their children and just a whole variety of things to think through who are the people that we're missing uh, here. I think it's important. Uh, this one's kind of a ministry question from Stephen. How can singles or those serving in youth ministry partner with parents in their church to help disciple kids and teenagers without becoming more influential or cooler than mom and dad? To some degree, I think that that is not anything to really worry about uh, because teenagers are at the point in their lives when they're they're, by God's design, starting to leave, mm-hmm. whether or not they're, they're going to cleave or not. They're, right. they're pulling away from mom and dad, and they're trying to figure out uh, sort of who am I as, a, as an individual. And so there's a, a sense in which it really doesn't matter uh, what sort of structure you have. There's going to come a time where a child is going to think my mom and dad are not as... Uh, they're not going to have as warm a view of mom and dad as maybe they would have had when they were smaller and and as they will when they're older. Uh, And also when they're going to start looking for where are some other uh, role models that I can identify with. That's one of the things that we've really lost 
with not having grandparents in a hypermobile sort of society, mm-hmm. not having grandparents nearby or engaged, mm-hmm. is that everybody, doesn't matter how great your parents are, there's going to come a time where you're going to say, they don't understand me. I've got to get out from under them. They're smothering me to death. And grandparents are usually uh, a way that, that that parents can sometimes identify. And sometimes parents will say, well, he thinks that his grandpa is just great. And yet, you know, here we are. <laughs> well, that's just normal and natural. And I think for within ministry, that is sometimes normal and natural too, as long as the youth pastor or the youth worker, whoever it is, is working to shore up parental connection, relationship, and authority rather than to tear it down. Mm. And usually I think they are. Mm. One of the things I find happens really more often is kind of the reverse, where parents assume spiritual discipleship is something that we have outsourced to children's workers and youth workers within the church. And so I mean, I remember seeing a cartoon in a magazine years and years ago of this uh, guy being arrested and his mom is out by the, the crime scene tape uh, yelling, son, son, where did your youth minister go wrong? And that was kind of a stinging sort of cartoon because that's the mentality that, that many people have. Okay, I'm here to provide shelter and food and then the church is mm-hmm. going to give the spiritual formation. Well, that's not, the church is that we're here to, to work with you in discipling your child, not to, to take that on. Our own. Sure. That's a good word. This last question uh, for our time together uh, comes from a special needs mom. Mm-hmm. Um, Allison says, what are some ways that I can encourage my neurotypical children so that they don't develop bitterness towards us or God about all the extra attention my son has to receive and all the ways our family cannot do things like other families. I think just talk about it. And uh, I mean, I I identify with that, Allison. We have two special needs uh, sons. And uh, some of that means teaching and training the other children what it means to sacrifice oneself uh, for the sake of of others. And to see that not as a burden uh, to be resented, but to say there actually is great joy in doing this. And that uh, and, and what you can hope is your neurotypical children are going to eventually be called to do that themselves for a, maybe for you, uh, when you're, you're uh, sick and in need of care, or maybe for a spouse, or maybe for a, a child uh, who is special needs or, or sick or, or something else. But also constantly reminding yourself that means that I have to be constantly aware of the attention that needs to be given to the children who maybe aren't immediately demanding it. And that's easy. I find that in my own life, it's easy for me to take for granted those in my family who aren't demanding attention. I mean, that's, that's true in my marriage. My wife is a very easygoing Person. She's very easy to get along with. So I, I never have to think, okay, how is this going to play with Maria? Or how am I going to somehow have to work Maria uh, through something? But I can become, I can really take that for granted in a way that can say, well, then I can just pay attention to all the crises that are out there and not tend to that. And the same thing can happen with, with children. Like I said, I've got this one child who needs 
constant attention, and these other children are are, are functioning and, and flourishing and aren't demanding that. But I can communicate to them, well, that means that that you don't need the attention of a father, in a way. And that, frankly, doesn't just happen with special needs uh, homes. That can happen in any home if you have one child who is has some behavioral trouble and another child who doesn't. Mm. Uh, you could just focus everything over here in a way that God doesn't do with us. He cares for his children regardless of, of sort of where they are on the spectrum of life. Right. Well, Dr. Moore, thank you so much for taking this time. This has been good for me. I, I'm sure that this has been very good for the audience. Um, we look forward to reading your book, The Storm-Tossed Family, when it comes out later this year. Uh, so thank you for, for kind of putting all that you did into that, and we can't wait to see the final product. Uh, This is also a glimpse of what you will see at our ERLC National Conference in October in Dallas, uh, October 11th through the 13th. The cross-shaped family is the theme of this year's ERLC National Conference. We would love to have you join us. If you enjoyed this conversation, there's going to be much more along along these same lines at our National Conference. As a matter of fact, tickets are available now. And if you just use the code FACEBOOK, uh, all caps, uh, at your checkout, you will receive a significant discount for tickets to join us. So we've, we would love to, to see you in Dallas, and uh, thank you for joining us today on this Facebook Live video from the ERLC. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.